you can explore an exclusive collection of case law at Decisis Law Reports. Browse a comprehensive collection of nearly 14,000 reports of Irish legal judgments delivered since 2011. Visit decisis.ie to find out more. Hello and you're very welcome to episode 33 of The Fifth Court, a podcast on legal affairs presented by myself, Peter Leonard Barrister. Myself, Mark Tottenham, Barrister and editor of Decisis.ie. Mark, how are you doing? Uh, And can I remind you that last week we were joined in studio by the legal academics, Professor Una Breen and Dr Noel McGrath, who's also a colleague of the Law Mm -hmm. Library. And they're both from the legal department in UCD and they talked about Chief Baron Palace. Mm. Now, what a reaction we got to that. Yeah, people. It's 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 interesting to hear of somebody of that kind of um, stature that that seems to have. He's certainly not a household name until now. No, well, hopefully now. Yeah, of course, now he is. Now he is, absolutely. And the book is fantastic, folks. So buy the book, buy the book. Well, today we also have two guests in studio. Barristers Mark Finan and Caroline McGrath are coming in to talk about the world of data protection and in particular a new ruling from the European Court of Justice on the issue of damages when a data subject's rights have been breached. While the case in question was primarily advanced by the Supreme Court of Austria, observations were also filed by the Irish government. So this should be very informative. Well, the suggestion is that the damages for breaches of data protection law are going to suddenly become a major issue. Yes, absolutely. We're hearing about data protection all the time mm. and GDPR and stuff like that. Yeah. So so what happens when somebody gets it wrong? That's I suppose that's that's the big issue. And hopefully the ECJ can give some pointers in relation to that. Looking forward to that discussion. But first, Mark, we're going to discuss three cases which you have identified on the Decisis website. And we're going to start today with a compulsory purchase order case. This is the case of Beads versus Keegan, a decision of Ms. Justice Roberts. It concerned a compulsory purchase order where the owner of the land sought to bring judicial review proceedings to overturn the order, obviously not happy with it, and to exclude the local authority from the lands. So a compulsory purchase order is famously obviously brought when the state needs generally something of an infrastructural nature to develop. So they have the right to effectively seize people's lands, but they have to pay compensation. Now, there's a whole process that's gone into. And one of the curious things I've always found is that there's actually very little public litigation concerning public compulsory purchase, which suggests to me, and I could be wrong on this, that, that generally speaking, the compensation is considered yeah. acceptable. But however, Mr. Beads in this case decided he was not happy with the process. However, he had actually engaged throughout the entire process. So he, so at the conclusion of the compulsory order process, um, the CPO process, he um, he brought judicial review proceedings seeking to quash the the um, purchase and to exclude the local authority from the lands. And the court just said no. He, he that the process had been completed from start to finish, and there was really no jurisdiction in the courts to interfere with the decision of the uh, local authority. Okay, very good, very good. Well, let's move to a rent arrears case. This is the case of Egerton versus Edgeform Metals Limited, a Court of Appeal decision from Mr. Justice Donald Binchy. In this case, a tenant sought to resist summary judgment in respect of rears, arrears of rent, claiming that he had the benefit of a set-off of rent mm. or a promise of a reduced rent. So he felt mm. he didn't have to pay the whole amount here, Mark. Yeah, so the um, <clears throat> basically a set-off against rent generally arises if, for example, this expenditure on the building or whatever, but normally there has to be some contractual basis for it. You can't just sort of um, 
you can't just say I spent money here and the, on on the premises and therefore I'm entitled to claim it back against the rent. But the other thing that arose here was that he said he'd been told by way of a promise that he would only have to pay, oh sorry, they, the, the company, would only have to pay 50% of the rent. And what this really boiled down to was the fact that a promise in, in and of itself is not a contract. That if there's going to be a promise to reduce the rent, there has to be some kind of contractual basis for this. There has to be consideration. And simply to say that I had a conversation with somebody to say that they would accept reduced rent isn't going to be sufficient. You that won't to, wash. No, there needs to be a contractual basis. Okay, very good. And finally, we have another Isaac Wonder case, Mark. It's like waiting for buses here, and they said they all come along together. Uh, we discussed on a couple. Of, we discussed a previous Isaac Wonder case a couple of weeks ago. This is the case of Slattery versus Slattery, a court of appeal decision from Mr. Justice Senan Allen. In this case, the plaintiff had already been made the subject of an Isaac Wonder type order. This meant that he had to apply to the court for leave to bring any further proceedings against certain parties. But when he made the application, the court wasn't happy that here he was back again. Definitely not. So for listeners who aren't familiar with the name Isaac Wonder, it's the term that's used in Ireland for an order that, that arises basically from what are generally frivolous or vexatious proceedings, where somebody has a, a record of bringing proceedings against a person that don't stand up to scrutiny, where they've wasted court time and the court basically, to, to mark its displeasure, effectively gives an injunction saying you can't bring more proceedings, uh, proceedings against this person. So it's not an absolute bar, but you do need to make an application then to the, the president of the relevant court in most cases to ask, can I bring further proceedings against this person? And in this case, they just looked at the fact that he was effectively trying to relitigate a matter that had been litigated over and over and over and over again. And they said, no, so you the can't. The court bring was not amused. Proceedings. The court was not amused. No. Okay, very good. Well, th thank you, Mark, for those. And we're back shortly with barristers Mark Finan and Caroline McGrath. Silence in the Fifth Court. Well, we're delighted to be joined in the studio today by barristers Mark Feenan and Caroline McGrath, who jointly wrote an article for the Bar Council recently on the subject of a recent decision uh, on uh, GDPR, or the General Data Protection Regulation, and in particular the issue of damages for breaches of the GDPR. Um, so, um, <clears throat> welcome to the studio and thanks for joining us. Thanks for having Thank us. Thank you. Um, so, Mark, tell us, well, th this, is this is a decision that arose out of an Austrian complaint, isn't that correct? Th that's correct. Um, it originated uh, where a gentleman found out that his data rights were being breached in that a company had collected information that was readily identifiable to him and they were able then to find out what political party or what political beliefs he had. So just to take a step back, the company, the name of the company, I can't, I'm not sure I can pronounce it well, is, it's, it's an Austrian post office. Is, is it the Austrian post office? Or is I'm I'm not sure if it's the Austrian. The, post. the name makes it sound yep. as if it's like a, yep. a, a, a anyway. It's a post. It's just, it's. A, I'm gonna have a go. Yeah, Österreich Post AG. Yeah, we will definitely go with that. That sounds good. <laughs> yeah. that sounds good. Okay. But but the, but the point being that it, it's a large company that has been uh, hoovering up information about Austrian citizens, and in particular, he was identified as having an association with a particular political party. Yes, and even um, a more concern for him was that he was then targeted as a re result of his affiliation being 
discoverable. And what, when you say targeted, targeted by who? I believe it was at the I think time. It was marketeers. I think it, it was being used for marketing purposes, and the the data was all amalgamated together. And on the basis of that amalgamation, so the, the company was selling the the, exactly. the the information on without getting permission from from uh, the individual yeah, citizens. If, if, if you look at the GDPR, one of the hallmarks of it uh, is consent. Yeah, that the consent has to be informed. That you you must know how and when your data is being uh, collected, and a lot of the algorithms that work in relation to harvesting this information, you just don't know that your preferences are being recorded and were still being used then for commercial reasons and commercial sensitivities. So that, that in essence, was his main complaint. Okay. That information was being collected about him, he didn't know, and it was being processed without his consent. And so it went through presumably the, the Austrian Data Protection Commissioner or and then uh, ultimately ended up before the Court of Justice. Yes, it went through the lower courts in Austria and he had brought uh, two, two basic claims. One was an injunction to prevent the company from uh, going forward and using his information again. And the second part of the complaint was he wanted to sue for non-material damages and he was seeking the sum of €1,000. And all the way, as the complaint went through the courts, the injunction was upheld and the claim for non-material damages wasn't upheld. And the Austrian Supreme Court then made a, a reference to the European Court of Justice on three, with three questions. And can we translate the term non-material damages into Irish law? Is that the equivalent of what we would call general damages? So damages for non-specific loss? Is, is the, 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 the problem, and it was identified by the CJAU in the recent decision, is that there, there's no reference or no description as to what non-material damages okay. would be in the um, regulation itself. And because they didn't want each member state to set a level of what material damages would be, They've now said that it falls back on the CJU to have uniformity and they've given us some idea of what non-material damages would be. Okay, and we, let's go into this. This is a huge decision and it's going to have really wide implications. Caroline, can I just bring you in there? Yep. Before we get into this actual decision and what the implications are, obviously this is an area of law that you're very interested in. I mean, it's a relatively new one. You know, why, why, what, what has attracted you to this area of law? That's correct. But I suppose it is a relatively new area of law in that the GDPR is in its infancy. It's five years old this month. And this is the first decision on this particular area. This particular area has undergone substantial change from the previous regime. So under the previous regime, the directive, um, which was implemented in Ireland using the 1988 and 2003 Act, the court had, had previously held that non-material damage just wasn't recoverable. So this is a very new area. It very much broadens the scope of what damage might be recoverable um, for breach of uh, the uh, data protection rights okay. under the GDPR. OK, and can I just ask you to explain material damage and non-material damage? Maybe give examples for our listeners just so that they understand what's what's going on here. Yeah, I suppose material damage is um, what one might ordinarily say as maybe financial loss. It's very easy, easy to 
calculate, you can recognise it. This has happened. I've lost money. That's the amount of money it's cost me to put it right. That's really fundamentally what constitutes material damage. Non-material damage is much more a much more nebulous concept. Um, it's very hard to put an economic value on it. It's very hard to say I can touch it or I can feel it or I can clearly identify what it is. Um, so it, it can be it, the the recitals of the GDPR list various examples of things that might constitute um, non-material damage. So they talk about things like upset, potentially loss of control over your data. So. Uh, as a concept, they're much more difficult to measure. Um, and it, it's also much more difficult to say where it starts and ends. Okay, so we're, we, we've been flying blind in relation to this for a while. Isn't absolutely. That, is, is, isn't that the case? That is the case, yes. This is the first decision on this area from the CJEU. It's one of uh, 11 references that have been made from uh, courts around various uh, parts of the EU in relation to this particular question. It's the first of a sequence of decisions, um, many of which touch on this area of what is non-material damage. And reading your article, it wasn't clear to me. I I thought the judge had said that that the court had said that this is a matter that the individual member states needed to assess. But you're saying that the Court of Justice itself wants to see uniformity across Europe in relation to the, the level of damages. Is that right? Yeah, so this, it's it's an EU law concept and within the the realms of EU law more generally, something which is an EU law concept must be interpreted in an autonomous way. Now, that doesn't mean that the courts uh, of each member state don't have some way of exerting their influence over Mm. it. But the concept of non-material damage itself, that is a term that must be understood within the concept of EU law and that must be uniform across all member states when it comes to the calculation of the quantum That's where the procedural rules of member states may come in. And and you in your articles drew a specific analogy with the nervous shock cases, the Kelly and Hennessy, the notion that that normally you you can only claim for upset if there's a, an actual associated um, psychiatric illness. Whereas the, the the suggestion here is that you can actually claim for, for under a broader heading of of upset. Certainly, uh, we had a series of articles, and I think we both operated under a belief that the CGAU would have said that there needed to be a de minimis or minimal level of damage suffered. Now it didn't. It it it, it rejected that concept, but it also rejected the concept that it is the equivalent of a tort of strict liability. Mm. So it it has clearly stated that it is up to the national courts to interpret a level of damage. Unfortunately, it hasn't said what that level of damage mm. is. And when it was answering then the second question, I think it was, it said that if there is a national law that, that prevents the effectiveness of that remedy, then the national courts ought to disapply it. So in the Irish context, we have uh, several cases in relation to uh, stress, anxiety, that sort of thing, that it must be at the level of uh, recognised psychiatric injury. If it can be argued that anxiety or stress or loss of confidence, that type of emotion is a personal injury, and if you do need PIAB authorization for it, it could be argued in court that the level that we have set ourselves 
through uh, Kelly and Hennessy is too high mm. and uh, breaches the doctrine of effectiveness, but only if it's accepted that it is a personal injury and you need PIAB authorization. You've talked about the doctrine of strict liability there. I'm thinking about, as you say, that there's two aspects. If it's a tort, you look at compensation for the victim of the injury as such. Is the approach that's taken here almost kind of penalisation, the breacher of the, the person who's breached the, the data protection it, rules? It, 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 is there, is, is, should that not be where the emphasis is? on A, a kind of a penalisation, a penalty for having breached data protection rules? I would say that it's a very interesting question. I personally don't believe that's the case because if you look at the different articles that um, deal with remedies, there is a remedy to go to the uh, supervising authority, which in Ireland would be the DPC, and they can penalise the breacher. If they don't have the correct procedures in relation to obtaining consent, if they don't have the correct procedures security procedures so, and so that sort of thing. Does the DPC have the power to, to compensate or only to penalise? No, oh, 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 they, they only have the power to penalise. I see. So but, this, this, this decision really only affects the civil courts. It doesn't affect the, the role of the DPC. Absolutely. Okay. It, it specifically mm. looks at the remedy contained in Article 82 and it compares it to the other remedies that are there in relation to the supervisory authority. But if you look at how, in an Irish context, data protection cases are drafted, a lot of the time when you get to the breach, it's pleaded as a blanket um, and the plaintiff has suffered stress yes. comfort, or loss mm. of confidence um, and anxiety, but there's no further particulars given. And certainly um, when I've argued cases, I've always made the point that in order to get damage, you have to explain the damage or you have to make a causal link to the breach. And again, this is a very helpful decision uh, from the CJU because the CJU does make that um, analysis as well in that you do need a causal link. So I do believe that we're going to find a situation where those cases are going to be pleaded. And Caroline, can I just ask you, maybe just the decision itself, Will you just take us through it? Because it is a very significant decision. Just go through it in, the, in terms of the judicial reasoning. Yeah, so there were three questions asked. Um, the The first of those questions was simply, is it is it necessary to have damage in addition to the infringement of the GDPR? Or can an infringement in and of itself without anything further amount to uh, something that is compensatable? The, the CJU went through that in some detail and really looked at the words that are actually used within the article of the GDPR itself and noted that the concepts of damage and compensation were both specifically mentioned within the the, the words used within the article. The CJU essentially adopted a literal interpretation of that article and was very much along the lines, well, the if if it was possible that an infringement in and of itself gave rise to a right to compensation. That's what would have been said in the article. That's not what is said. The article goes further and mentions the concept of damage. So the CJEU firmly relied on the literal interpretation that infringement plus damage plus a causal link between that infringement and the damage is required 
in order to uh, give your entitlement to compensation. Um, they answered the third question, which was posed next, rather than the, in the order that the court necessarily asked them. Um, so I'm going to do that as yeah, well this, do, this evening. Please do. Um, so the, the third question referred to the concept of non-material damage and was there that type of a threshold requirement? So that sort of a de minimis principle that yes. we had seen start to creep into the jurisprudence from the neighbouring jurisdiction in the United Kingdom, where under their Data Protection Act, they have had a number of decisions where they have referred to this de minimis principle that really it needs to be something more than just mere upset before you have an entitlement to damage. The CJU have rejected that um, and they've rejected that again in accordance with the, the words that are used, but they've also referred to the recitals of the GDPR. And one of the, the significant recitals in this area is recital 146, which says that damage must be given a broad interpretation. And the CJU suggests that if the if a de minimis threshold were to be applied, that that would be contrary to that ambition of giving damage a broad interpretation and therefore contrary to the 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 purpose of the GDPR and ensuring a high level of protection for data subjects and their rights. Um, so that was how the 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 CJU answered the third question. The second question then refers to, well, is it the principles of equivalence and effectiveness in EU law? Are they the only two things that the court must take account of um, or are there other principles? And the, there's, a, I suppose, a more cursory answer given to that particular question. But the principles of equivalence and effectiveness are absolutely seen as uh, the, the important principles. Um, and in equivalence, I suppose, we're saying that is, does the, the the, the national court procedures, does it allow that uh, the remedy which is available to a data subject in, in Ireland um, is the same as what would be available across okay. other EU jurisdictions? And in terms of effectiveness, is it excessively difficult for a data subject to exercise their rights in accordance with the GDPR? in accordance with our national principles. And that's where we come back to that our national procedures, if we were to continue to adopt a Kelly and Hennessy type standard, that is likely That's going to be out of sync to, with our colleagues yeah. throughout the exactly. European Union. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, Mark, you've, you've, you've explained that very well as well. What, what a wonderful uh, <laughs> insight into the decision. That was a brilliant analysis there. Uh, but Mark, you've talked about the kind of universality as well. I suppose just kind of trying to break this down into lay terms, you know, that the phrase that came into my mind was if, if a tree falls in the forest, you know, mm -hmm. does any, and nobody's there, does anybody hear it? You know, the old kind of cliche. I mean, if there has been a data breach and nobody's affected, you know, like your data appears somewhere, there has been a breach of your data, uh, but really you can't attach any sort of personal injury to that or upset or stress or whatever. Is that going to be okay then? So is it going to be dependent on the fact <clears throat> that you can establish some sort of material damage? Is that still required if there's, if there's no kind of, if, if it's very broad? Certainly, um, if we look at the Irish case law that hasn't applied to GDPR, but the data protection regime that existed before it, the answer would be you must have damage. It is, it's, it's set up as a tort under Section 7 of the old Act, Section 117 of uh, the new Data Protection Act, it is a tort. The courts have been quite clear and you must have damage in order to succeed for compensation. 
in a tort. I can't see why that principle needs to be changed at all. But I I know there's a certain uh, level of argument that or if you do feel stress or anxiety or something like that, you should be able to recover. And causation would not be a problem in relation to that. Ca- causation is not. A, a, it, it, it actually it depends because um, technology has become so sophisticated. Uh, if you look at algorithms that uh, gather your personal information and you asked the creators of those algorithms to explain how they got your information. There's a concept called black box technology and they just wouldn't be able to. Now, you mightn't, if you're like me, be able to understand it. I I definitely don't understand it. If you were told it. But it's an interesting concept. I don't know if you'll ever have a data breach where nobody doesn't suffer. Doesn't a lot of this come back to the the role of the Data Protection Commissioner? Because if you, you can only really find out if, for example, a particular company is selling your data on if you have access to the information of where they're selling it. So that's the sort of information that you need to go to the the Data Protection Commissioner or the equivalent in each member state. And then, so I suppose I have two questions. First of all, you know, I, I mean, I was looking at the Data Protection Commissioner's uh, annual report recently, and they, they've had something like 9,000 cases processed, which seems like a drop in the ocean, considering we have some of the largest tech companies in the world headquartered here. And you could easily find that people all across uh, the, the EU suddenly started to, to file complaints with the DPC. But then also, is there going to be a role for the Irish civil courts if people start to find that, for example, if it were to, to be found that somebody had a complaint against Google or Facebook or LinkedIn or any of the organisations that had headquartered here, I mean, might they be, be, be bringing civil cases in the Irish courts or would they be matters for their own member states? Do I take the question correctly that it's um, somebody living in a different member state? Yeah, could yeah. They... Well, I mean, the, 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 they can bring their complaint to the Irish DPC anyway, can't they? I mean, because that's, that's they, been they, happening. They, they, they could. In relation, though, to bringing a claim for a breach of the GDPR, um, I suspect... I, I can't see why they wouldn't be able to bring a complaint in the Irish courts if they're or in their own. I can't see why they wouldn't be able to do that. It would depend on where the company's headquartered. It would depend on where the breach ostensibly took place. But I mean, it's it's famously been said that the Irish DPC was something of a, of a bottleneck in terms of GDPR enforcement across Europe because we are hosting so many large tech firms. So, I mean, I suppose the the the, the role of the data, data Protection Commissioner here is going to become increasingly under the spotlight, isn't it? I think it's important to differentiate between the role of the Data Protection Commissioner mm. and the role of the courts. Mm. Um, so, the, the Data Protection Commissioner, um, as Mark has already said, deals with enforcement, mm. deals with fines. It does deal with complaints from members of the public. But, 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 but isn't but, it also how you would find out if if you were to say a particular tech company, I suspect that they are selling my information onto a third party firm. You would need to bring your complaint to the Data Protection Commissioner simply to find out where they're selling the information. I wouldn't necessarily agree with that. Um, as a data subject, you're entitled to bring, make a data subject access request to anyone that mm. you believe is processing your data. Mm. 
So I think that is probably where you'd start off in terms of sure. finding out. Yeah. Um, and, and then you could possibly bring a complaint to the data processor, the controller. If you're not getting satisfaction there, you mm. might choose to go to the Data Protection Commissioner or you might choose to go to the courts. Um, you have that, uh, that, that uh, dual options in terms of where you go next. And the power of the Data Protection Commissioner is quite different mm. to the power of the court. And, okay. and the DPC has to be informed within 72 hours of a data breach taking sure. uh, place. And if they aren't informed, um, that in itself is a breach. Sure. But chances are you've probably consented to your data being collected by these companies when you tick the boxes at the very beginning. But as I said at the outset, it has to be informed consent. And I think that's where the more interesting cases will lie in the future. Guys, the more we talk about this, I, I saw an article recently with the great Noel Gallagher of Oasis fame who said that the headline was, I think life was better before the internet. You know, and I have to say how right that man was. Might not be wrong. Caroline, this decision, what's it going to do? I mean, it's it, obviously it'll, it has to break down. People have to take it on board. They have to consider it. They have to analyse it. I mean, you've analysed it brilliantly for us, as has Mark, and your article is superb. But where is it going to go? Where are we going to go with this? You know, what, 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 what's this going to be the start of? I think it's the starting point for the CJEU. And there, there are a number of other references which continue um, in the background. The, uh, the Advocate General's opinion in the second reference has been released, interestingly, a number of days before the judgment in, in the Austrian Post case. There are uh, uh, nine other references in, in the pipeline, many of which consider in more detail and more specifics based on the particular facts of individual references, the, the questions become a little bit more specific. So I think this is, this is the starting point from the CJU. We are going to get more jurisprudence over the next 12 to 24 months from the CJU. Right now, what, what does this give us? I think as practitioners, this gives us a better idea of what way we need to ensure that we're drafting our pleadings, mm. how we need to make sure that we're separately pleading what the damage is, that we're, we're not just relying on an infringement. Um, equally, if you're, if you're for the defence, it, it gives you ways to, to perhaps tackle um, the, the, the poor pleading that has happened in, in some cases here to, heretofore. We also have a decision of the circuit court from Mr. Justice John O'Connor, um, where he has stayed um, a, a, a number of decisions awaiting the decisions of the CJU. That stay operates until there's about six, seven decisions that uh, that, that stay uh, will not be lifted until all of those decisions have come down. So do I see a, a rapid change in the Irish courts and the judgments that are coming through? Probably not. I think we're not quite at the end okay. of the logjam just yet. But the information is certainly coming through mm. to allow us to learn more and perhaps to predict with greater certainty what but, but this the area of law, might be. Mark, this area of law, it is going to grow, isn't it? Massively, along with AI, uh, data protection are, is certainly something when I started out. I suppose there has always been data. <laughs> there has. Back you, go to back the to, you go back to the Egyptians. I was going to say Greek and Roman times. There's always been a little bit of data. But de definitely, it's it's definitely a growth area. And if somebody is looking to sort of specialise or just make themselves more appealable or marketable, I would definitely recommend it 
because it is something that you can build your knowledge bit by bit. And it's not something that you should ever uh, balk at because technology would not be something that would come natural to me. And I'm able to walk myself through data protection cases now. Yes. Okay, well, thanks very much for a very interesting discussion. We still have a question for each of you. I have a confession to make because I liaised with Mark in relation to this interview, but I never told you that we asked this question at the end. I don't know whether you've listened to previous shows, but we always ask for a book recommendation or a movie recommendation, potentially on a legal theme. So I think we're springing this on them a little bit, but let's see if they can respond. The book, I read a recent book about Clarence Darrow that was, Excellent. Really, really good. Um, Lawrence Darrow, the writer, as in the Darrows of Corfu. No, Clarence Darrow, the... Sorry, sorry. I hope we can cut that bit. (laughs) I misheard you completely. (laughs) No, no. Please proceed, Mark. I was like, I really did read that book. Sorry for that appalling interruption. (laughs) (laughs) And I guess Primal Fear is the movie. Yes, great. Mm. Okay, good, good, good. Caroline? I'm a firm believer that reading and uh, movies should be for fun as opposed to necessarily about your profession. But if I was put on the spot, maybe The Children Act. Um, It's a book by Ian McEwen, um, starring Emma Thompson in the movie version. It relates to um, medical treatment and the courts intervening where medical treatment isn't um, necessarily what the parents of a very ill child wanted. And talking about legal books, Caroline, we have to point out that your brother was a guest on this show some weeks ago, or maybe only a week or two ago, and he has written a wonderful book about Palace CB. Have you read that one yet? He has indeed. I must confess, I've done a little bit of skim reading, but not the whole detail of it. But a fascinating subject. Well, I'm going to recommend that book again, because it's absolutely brilliant. Folks, thank you very much. Mark Finan, Barrister, Caroline McGrath, Barrister, thank you very much for coming in and being guests on the Fifth Court. Thank you very much. Thank you. The Fifth Court will adjourn until next week. And that's all from this edition of The Fifth Court. We hope you have enjoyed it. Can we say a huge thank you to our guests, Mark Finan and Caroline McGrath, for coming in and telling us about the latest developments in data protection law. Very interesting. And this is going to be a growth area, Mark. Yeah, it's a technical area that I must say I've certainly struggled to get my head around to date. But the issue and what surprised me here was that it looks as if there's going to be a, a real role for the civil courts. I thought this would be a matter largely for the Data Protection Commissioner. But yes. from what they're saying, no, is that if you can establish a loss, if you can establish establish a data breach, there could well be civil claims arising. Yeah, no, big time. Absolutely. I I, I had to make my, my put in, put out that quotation from Noel Gallagher, of course. Was of life course. better before the internet, what do you think? Well, it's had its pluses and minuses. <laughs> I suppose it has. Also, can we say a huge thank you to our producer, Cunnell O'Moroin, and the Dublin South Podcast Studios, and the great Lee Brennan, the great Lee Brennan, who has recorded this show today and has done a wonderful job as always. So again, we want to say to our listeners out there, please contact the show if you have any thoughts, any comments and anything you would like to say to us. And we are always open to criticism and to suggestions and to compliments, Mark. All of those things. (laughs) You get all the compliments anyway, so there you go. Okay, so for me, Peter Leonard. And myself, Mark Tottenham. Thank you for listening and we'll see you soon in the Fifth Court. Never miss a vital Irish legal judgment. Check out Decisis Law Reports, where you'll find a fully indexed collection of all Irish judgments delivered since 2011. Visit decisis.ie to find out more.